Welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Clay. I'm Sarah. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. This is part two of a two-part series. So if you have not heard the last episode, please feel free to listen to that and catch up. For those that are already caught up, um, welcome back. <laughs> But to start off this episode, I thought it would be nice to do a bit of a recap. Okay. To sort of reaffirm where we are and then go from there. Does that sound good? It does. All right. So um, Max is eating. Yeah, Max is eating again. <laughs> uh, usually usually is whenever we're um, recording. So <laughs> I don't think he's been at that dish in hours. He just chooses to when we're recording. Yeah. That's just the way it goes. Okay. Ignis Semmelweis found himself running a maternity ward at Vienna General Hospital in 1846, and he was faced with a crisis. Young mothers were dying in his ward at a rate of up to 12.24%, five times higher than the second maternity ward. They were all dying from purpural fever, and Semmelweis knew that something within his ward, perhaps something he, his own staff was doing, was causing this. So he set to find out why by investigating every possible cause, no matter how silly it seemed, but he could not find the cause. Meanwhile, his boss, Professor Klein, found Semmelweis's investigation insulting as it insinuated that there was something wrong with the way that he ran his hospital. But Semmelweis was about to have an epiphany, and it came after his good friend's bizarre death. Joseph Kolechka had been cut with a knife covered in cadaveric material during an autopsy and died of, a, of blood poisoning. But his symptoms and his own autopsy matched up exactly with how the young women in Semmelweis's ward were dying. Semmelweis knew this was not a coincidence. The mothers were being infected with cadaveric material too. Ugh. And they were being infected by himself and his students. They were performing autopsies on the mothers that morning who had died, and then performing examinations and deliveries on new mothers that afternoon. They thought that washing with soap and water was sufficient, and that the horrid smell of putrefaction, literally where, literally where we get the word putrid from, was so strong that it remained be behind even if their hands were clean. Mm. But this was not the case. But with the cause of death suspected, Semmelweis concluded that if the smell remained, then something invisible to the eye that could not be washed off also remained. So Semmelweis had a simple solution. If you could remove the smell, you must be removing the infecting agent too, right? He concocted a chlorine solution with sand for scrubbing and placed bowls of this at the entrance of his clinic for students and teachers to wash their hands upon entering. After each examination, they were instructed to wash their hands with soap and water. This system of prophylaxis resulted in mortality dropping from 12.24% in May to 1.2% in July. The results were conclusive. The disinfectant worked. Right? Yeah. But students hated using the chemical. 
Sure. Because it was it irritated their hands. Yeah. And it had a noxious odor. It's chlorine. Exactly. When the fall term started, mortality rates rose because of students who neglected to disinfect their hands. Come on, man. When Simmelweis learned of a particular student who boasted to his peers about not properly washing his hands, Simmelweis cornered him in the hallway and laid down a nuclear smackdown of (laughs) insults and threats. Oh my god. Simmelweis had even petitioned that doctors who treated mothers and delivered babies not be involved in autopsies at all. You know, I'm in favor of that. It seemed like kind of an obvious next step. Sure. But Professor Klein hated this. And yes, he hated Semmelweis too. When Klein had become the head of obstetrics at Vienna General, he had been the one to encourage students to participate in dissections. He had been the one to reject the theory that filth caused disease and instead was caused (laughs) by the atmospheric cosmic telluric forces. This is an Occam's razor scenario, guys. Pretty much. Good Lord. So you can imagine their relationship was tumultuous. Mm. But as long as Simmelweis did his work and his work was successful, Klein had no recourse against him. Right. It's one thing to say, I don't believe you, but if it's working, what can you do? Right. Then in the fall of 1847, something horrible happened. Oh, no. In his ward... With strict strict prophylaxis in use, 12 women in one row suddenly all became ill, and 11 of them died. Jeez. This seemed to fly in the face of his theory, as there was no way they had come in contact with rotting flesh. Mm-hmm. Simmelweis investigated and found the cause. The first mother had been suffering from uterine cancer, <gasps> and the discharge had infected the doctor's hands. Oh, my God. And which he used to infect the other women in the rows. Oh, okay. So we're still not washing hands between patients. We are. We're washing hands in between patients. With the chlorine stuff? No. Well, that's what I'm saying. We're washing with soap and water in Uh, between. When we're coming in, mm -hmm. we're disinfecting. Okay. And in between each patient, we're washing with with, uh, water and soap. He learned two things from this tragedy. Purple fever was not just caused by cadaveric material, but rather any infected source. And his system of prophylaxis was not good enough. So he informed staff and students, you know that chemical that burns your hands and your (laughs) eyes and your nose, and you hate using it every single time you enter my ward? Well, now you need to use it after every single examination. Yeah. Students loathed the change, and the critics piled on him, but he continued on with full confidence that it was the right choice. So I have a question, and you may not know this, but like, were their hands getting jacked up? Um, I don't know for sure, but I know that the students um, disliked it because it irritated their hands. Right. So I assume it did. Uh. But you would, you would think it would be preferred... To the the stench of of rotting flesh and and all that. Sure, but I don't know. Maybe they got kind of used to that after a while. True. 
He continued to expand his application of disinfecting to anything that came into contact with his patients, catheters, bedpans, forceps, even bed linens. Hmm. The staff also hated this because it took a lot of time away from their other important duties, but the results couldn't be ignored. His friends, seeing his incredible success, urged him to write and publish his results for the world to see, but he refused. Oh. He thought the best use of his time was to teach students, show them that it works, and they would spread his prophylaxis methods to hospitals across the world. Okay. Surely he knew, especially with how hard it was to get people to accept it in his own hospital, that expecting it to spread quickly without his advocacy was a bit ignorant. I mean, that makes sense. Like, just reading it is not going to be more effective than somebody showing you that it works. Like, Well, it's it's also secondhand. Right. Like, I know exactly how it works, and I'm telling someone else how to do it, they're not going to know exactly how to do it just from me explaining it to them. Mm-hmm. If they don't, if, if they have it written down, maybe they would. But just telling you, hey, here's how the system works. They go home and say, ah, it works kind of like this. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work exactly right. Yeah. But his advocates, colleagues, and students alike who saw and understood the importance of what he was doing spread his theory across Europe. Of course... For every advocate, there were critics who spoke out against him. As much as he was pleased by his success, the naysayers really dug their nails into him, and it caused him a lot of grief, which we'll get into later. But there was also something else that we hadn't talked about, and it can't be ignored. The crushing guilt he felt, knowing that he he personally Mm. had sent so many women to their death due to his own actions. Yeah. Semmelweis wrote, God only knows the number of women whom I have consigned prematurely to the grave, for I have occupied myself with the cadaver to a degree reached by few obstetricians. And he was not alone. A fellow obstetrician named Michaelis had been one of the first to use Semmelweis's method and saw its success. But before he did, he had lost so many mothers in the same way, including his own young cousin. Mm. The knowledge that she and so many others had died due to the infection caused by his own hands just destroyed him. And that's why he threw himself under the wheels of a train in Hamburg. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh. Meanwhile, attempts to get the Vienna medical faculty to start an investigation into Semmelweis's innovations were again stifled by Klein and those loyal to him. Klein stood in the way of progress at every turn, and the final nail in the coffin occurred on March 20th, 1849, when Semmelweis's application for reappointment as assistant in the first division of Vienna General Hospital was declined. Mm. Klein had fired Semmelweis, despite the mortality rate in his clinic dropping below that of the second clinic. Wow. He was replaced by Carl Braun, whose only qualification was that he had invented a decapitation hook for delivering babies who died in the womb. What the fuck? How about that? What? 
After enduring ridicule and professional embarrassment, Semmelweis left Vienna and returned to Budapest. He became an honorary senior physician in the obstetrics division at St. Rocus Hospital, and he immediately implemented his prophylaxis system, as well as not allowing physicians who participated in surgeries or autopsies to enter his clinic. The hospital had been experiencing a purple fever epidemic mm. that had alarmed the entire city. It was like, sure, it, it was horrible. So it would be no easy task to deal with this. But during his six years at St. Rocus, the maternity clinic saw a mortality rate of 0.85%. Holy smokes. But again, he found resistance from his superiors who refused to believe him despite the overwhelming and obvious evidence. Because you got to remember, this is like thousands of years mm-hmm. of science that he is going against. Sure. People aren't going to just roll over and accept it. Even with obvious evidence in front of them, there there's going to be pushback from people who just can't. Right. Well, in 1855, Simmelweis was given a professorship at the University of Pesh, where he was back in a teaching position and again immediately implemented his methods. The students and staff, again, hated it because <laughs> it was time-consuming, the chemicals irritated their skins and noses, but Semmelweis was sharp as a tack, and his incessant nagging um, resulted in his clinic achieving a mortality rate of 0.39%. It just keeps getting better. But errors continue to occur. After an inexplicable purple fever outbreak in his clinic, Semmelweis found that a nurse was not properly changing linens. Mm. He was so angry that he banished her from the hospital. Fair enough, honestly. And after another outbreak, Semmelweis traced it back to bedsheets, which should have been clean, but were soiled. Was it another case of not changing linens? No. He discovered the hospital had hired the cheapest laundry services in the city, who often returned completely unwashed linens to the hospital. Now, what the hell? (laughs) Infuriated and seeing red, Semmelweis burst into the hospital director's office and threw the putrid bedsheets at him. (gasps) Oh, my God. (laughs) Great. Again, making enemies of his superiors. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1857, he married, and soon after, they had a baby bearing his name, Ignis. But 36 hours later, the baby had died. No! Three years later, they had a baby girl who died after four months. What the hell? I mean, I I know that uh, infant mortality in the 1800s is is not great, but come on! Well, you got to imagine... Even knowing that. Oh, sure. Hard to deal with. Yeah. But still, he persisted in his work. But despite his methods and results spreading across Europe, they often did not fully understand his findings. Mm -hmm. Because, yet again, he hadn't written down his methods. For instance, they would often mistakenly only refer to cadaveric material as the cause of infection. The misunderstanding was... Well, understandable. This was new science, and it wasn't even understood what exactly was causing the infection in the first place. Mm -hmm. 
And as I said, Semmelweis had not written papers to explain in his own words meticulously what he was advocating for. And so, of course, there were still those who adhered to the old theories and insulted Semmelweis's methods as ineffective. Since misunderstandings often led to mixed results when hospitals tried to implement his methods, for instance, if they're doing everything correct, but they are only doing it for cadaveric material and not mm. other in sources of infection, they're going to have uh, mortality rates that aren't very good, sure. possibly, which would say, which would show, hey, he's wrong, mm -hmm. right? And this only provided more ammunition to his enemies. It must have been so infuriating watching these people insult you and your success while in their own clinics mothers were dying by the hundreds yeah that would be incredibly frustrating then finally in 1861 Simmelweis published his magnum opus for god's sake the etiology concept and prophylaxis of purple fever the the this 543-page book is one of the most <laughs> exhaustive medical documents ever written. I believe it. He poured every detail of his years of experience out in, in great detail. Mm -hmm. And he spends nearly half of the book addressing his critics and answering every single critique of his method. Wow. Perhaps to his detriment, Simmelweis had declared war on those who opposed him. Mm-hmm. He began writing open, scathing letters to his critics. In one letter written in response to the fact that in the 10 years after his leaving Vienna General, um, they saw a horrific 1,924 women die needlessly from purple fever. Wow. He wrote, in this massacre, you, her professor, have participated. The homicide must cease and... With the object of bringing this homicide to an end, I shall keep watch, and every man who dares to spread dangerous errors regarding purpural fever will find in me an active opponent. Oh, my God. <laughs> Get him. In another letter to one of his harshest critics, he wrote, I have formed the unshakable resolution to put an end to the murderous work as far as lies in my power to do so. If, however, without having discussed my doctrine as an opponent, you go on to write in support of the doctrine of ep epidemic purple fever to teach your students the doctrine of epidemic purple fever, I denounce you before God and the world as a murderer. Wow. Okay, great. So at least we're not going too far. <laughs> These open letters were deliciously scandalous. Yeah. But they did did more harm than good. Yeah. Semmelweis's indignation was burning so many bridges and creating so much drama that it hindered his ultimate goal, proving the efficiency of his method. Well, and you also have to figure, like, if you're pissing these people off so much, they're definitely not going to be like, you know what, this guy's right. I do suck. I'm going to do what he says now. Yeah, it must feel really nice to just write these scathing letters against people. I mean, yeah, but don't mail them. But what are you accomplishing for real? Yeah. And as time was passing, his friends were beginning to notice it was not only his critics that he was becoming more irritable with. He was behaving erratically, irritable and impatient with everyone. Mm. 
He was 43 around this time, but his appearance had also drastically changed. He was elderly looking. Oh, wow. A far cry from the vibrant man he was just four years ago when he got married. Dang. Like he was balding and wrinkly and Mm -hmm. white, whereas before he was not. Right. It seemed that he was bearing the weight, not only of all those who had died by his own hands, but the weight of all those who are still dying in hospitals across Europe because he could not properly convince or properly explain to others how to use his method. Right. His lectures also became unintelligible to his students, and his behavior grew strange. At a dinner, he suddenly rose from his seat and began to, and began to chastise his guests with a torrent of impassioned yet incomprehensible words. And at and during a meeting to discuss um, the selection of his own assistant, Semmelweis produced a piece of paper and inexplicably began reading the midwife's oath. Okay. It was at this time determined by his friends and family that he was indeed suffering from some sort of mental illness. Yeah. He was admitted to a sanatorium mm. in Vienna where at first he seemed friendly and appreciative of the help, but then tried to leave because his patients needed him. He was forcibly restrained and fell into a fit of delirium. Oh, God. He was put in a straitjacket and locked in a dark room. Fuck, man. Six weeks (sighs) later, restrained and alone and probably confused and scared, Ignis Simmelweis was dead. Oh, God. His cause of death was an infected wound on his finger, possibly from a a gynecological operation. In horrific, poetic fate, Simmelweis died from the exact same infection that had killed Kolechka. That's messed up. The same blood infection that had killed thousands of young mothers and that he had dedicated his life to ending. That is so messed up. I think he was murdered. It's thought that he was suffering from possibly Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. a bipolar illness. Um, it's even thought that it was some sort of STD because he was beginning to frequent prostitutes. Oh. Um, there was that was affecting his brain sure but it's not known for sure yeah syphilis will do that to you yeah dang so we don't know exactly what happened to cause him to just kind of go mad but it just happened to be a bad i don't think he was murdered i think he was in a bad place that didn't understand how to treat people with his condition and yeah. it just well i'm just, just saying happened. the fact that like it just so happened to be a cut on his hand and it had dead vagina cells on it Ooh, like you know what i'm saying hmm. and th- there's there's room for conspiracy theories in there yeah maybe <clears throat> but hope was not lost his hope that students would champion and spread his method which proved to be effective had come true over the next several years Hospitals saw that when properly implemented, the disinfecting regimen worked. 
Even Semmelweis's harshest critics changed their tune, admitting and embracing the truth that they could not deny. Then in 1879, during a discussion on puerperal fever, one fella was going over the causes of epidemics and lying, lying in hospitals when he was interrupted by Louis Pasteur. Oh. Who said, none of those findings caused the epidemic. It is the nursing and medical staff who carry the microbe from an infecting woman to a healthy one. The man said he feared the microbe would never be seen or found, to which Pasteur went to the blackboard and drew a, a drawing of Steptolococcus bacteria and said, there, that is what it looks like. Wow. Louis Pasteur, by the way, is one of the fathers of germ theory, developed the vaccines for rabies and cholera, and discovered the method for pasteurization, which mm. bears his name. Even before this, Joseph Lister discovered that using carbolic acid as an antiseptic while treating fractures resulted in faster healing. He, he pioneered antiseptic practices for surgery, even though Semmelweis was disinfecting gynecological instruments years prior. Mm -hmm. But Lister gets his name on mouthwash. Right. <laughs> and Semmelweis gets his name on nothing. Yeah. Frank Slaughter ends his book on Semmelweis with this. As a martyr to the world's stupidity, <laughs> Semmelweis is one of the great tragic figures in all history. Had he lived but a few uh, had he lived but two decades longer, he would have seen his theory fully explained and accepted, his prophylaxis used throughout the world. As it was, he died at the very dawn of a new age of surgery and midwifery and other men carried to victory the fight he began. How terribly sad. It's, it's tragic. And he and in another book I was reading, he, he was compared to a modern Cassandra from ancient Greek mythology. She was given the gift of foresight, mm -hmm. but cursed that no one would ever believe her. That would drive you crazy so quickly. But today, his work can be fully understood and appreciated. And we have Ignis Semmelweis to thank for the fact that we are alive today. Hey, thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Ignis. And thank you for listening to this two-parter. It took a long time to put together. It had to read a couple of books. So it's a lot of story to tell. Yeah, so I appreciate everyone who listened through it, including you, Sarah. Oh, thanks so much. If you enjoyed it, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on us to, to on us. Yep. Check us out on Instagram. We're fantastic HPod. And if you, you can also find us on YouTube and TikTok where we go by Fantastic History Podcast. And as always, you can shoot us an email at <laughs> fantastichistorypod at gmail.com if you have suggestions for topics or if you have feedback or you just want to say, hey. Hey, buddy. Well, until next week, goodbye. Bye.